Welcome to Why Therapy, a podcast where we hear from mental health professionals about the way therapy actually works and how it might be helpful for you. I'm Matt Shebb. My guest today is Anna Aloisi, a therapist in Tampa, Florida, who specializes in multicultural couples counseling and who also works to make mental health care accessible to minority communities. In our talk, we cover a range of issues, like why more people are coming to therapy during COVID. It's harder to escape things when they're right in front of you. We can find Mm -hmm. many excuses on our regular lives to go hang out with people, you know, stay late at work. The unique bond that can exist between a therapist and a client is something that many people have never experienced in their lives. Maybe they never had unconditional acceptance in the past. And some of the challenges that minority communities can often face to receiving the mental health support that they need. Are there services available? Are there providers who can speak their languages, right? Are there organizations that might be flexible about cultural differences? Here's Anna. When people come into therapy now, kind of in this moment, have you noticed different presenting concerns than before COVID? Um, I would say not necessarily different. I did a lot with couples. So um, I, I, the majority of my clients are couples compared to individuals. I would say that it has intensified whatever problem was underlying or existent. So before, you know, you go to work, go do whatever you got to do, there's a lot of distractions from your problems. When we're isolating and we really can't go to a lot of places, you, it's harder to escape your problems. So some people turn into drinking or using drugs. I mean, that will just exacerbate the problem, right? It's harder to escape things when they're right in front of you. We can find mm-hmm. many excuses on our regular lives to go hang out with people, you know, stay late at work. But that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's it's harder to run away from the things that is kind of bothering you. Absolutely. So many divorces. I've also seen many marriages. Um, you know, people who maybe decided that because it's better to isolate together, let's just move in, let's just get married. So I, you know, it's just kind of these extremes. People mm-hmm. are either breaking up or they're getting married. Oh wow, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Um, because yeah, you're you're stuck with that one person, so it's kind of intensifying that bond. Absolutely, that's interesting. For new relationships, right, where like you want to spend that much time together with someone, yeah, um, is a perfect honeymoon. Yeah, yeah, because, right. But it's also the perfect recipe for disaster. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what would uh, so to somebody who is new and maybe thinking about getting into therapy, how would you generally describe your approach kind of in general terms? Um, you know, I, I actually, I love that you're doing this, this podcast and like how you want to encourage people to do therapy, because I think that one of the limitations that I find most people have when they're considering talking to someone is um, whatever beliefs they already have about therapy, right? Like maybe from movies or TV, I feel like, you know, a lot of movies kind of paint this picture of what therapy is going to be like um, and what that relationship is going to be with that person. I would say a big fear that a lot of people have is to be judged, Mm. to be judged, to maybe be told that they're doing something wrong or Mm. that um, they're bad somehow. And therapy is actually the opposite of that. Think about talking to your best friend and feeling accepted by them no matter what you say to them. Mm-hmm. 
And I want to emphasize, no matter what you say to them. So we're not judged. We're not, there's no good or bad. Uh, what we do a lot is just to listen and to help people feel and feel accepted and validated for feeling the way they feel or for doing the things that they did, even though it maybe had negative consequences. Um, we try to really understand why did these things happen? Um, how can we prevent that from happening if negative consequences um, took place? But I would say it's like having a welcoming friend. We're not friends because obviously we don't know the people that surround you. We don't really know you in your personal life, but it does feel like a very intimate friendship. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people like the relationship between a client and a therapist is something that many people have never experienced in their lives. Maybe they never had unconditional acceptance in the past. And that is something that can be very special for many. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a powerful experience that goes beyond just something you can, you can't read about that. You have to experience that with another person. Right. And I think that it may, even if you read about it, you might still buy it might be hesitant, like, ah, is that really true? You know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly anyone who decides to go see a therapist for the first time is taking a risk, right? It's taking a risk. You know, maybe it is going to be like that movie that I saw, or maybe it is going to be like what my friend told me, Um, but maybe it's not. So it's it's taking a risk just to see what it's going to be like. And my experience is that for the most part, People are surprised. Pleasantly surprised? Pleasantly surprised. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that at times the rapport or the the interaction that you can have between the therapist and a client and with someone and they didn't really feel a connection, then maybe that person's just not for them. Mm, It's important to find someone that you feel comfortable with because that can affect your perception of therapy in the future as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That therapeutic connection that keeps coming up in these interviews that I'm doing, that that's kind of the key element. Um, Obviously the approach and the modality and all that is important as well. But if that connection's not there, then the rest of the pieces aren't really going to work. It sounds like. Exactly. So how would you kind of speaking of approach and, and, and uh, kind of orientation, what, how would you describe the way that you look at therapy or your therapeutic approach? So I went actually went to school uh, for mental health counseling to treat individuals, but I also have a graduate certificate on marriage and family therapy. So what I had to do is when I see a client individually, I look at it differently than if I see someone in, in a couple. Mm-hmm. So I always tell my couple clients, for example, like, um, you know, Partner A is not my client and partner B is not my client. My client is your relationship. And I'm advocating for your relationship. And that's why you're coming to see me, obviously, to help you for, for your relationship, right? Um, so in in a couple setting, you look at, we call it a systemic interaction. It's just like two people constantly interacting and feeding a cycle. And that cycle can be a very positive cycle, right? Like I give love, I give love, I get love back. Or it could be a negative cycle where like I say or do X and then that partner is going to have a reaction from that 
whatever action that is. And then I'm going to receive something back in return, right? But a lot of times, I only see and feel what I get back. And I'm not really seeing what am I doing that is creating some of this interaction. So um, it's a little bit different in the sense of how, how do I see an individual person and how do I help that person address the problems that they might experience compared to when I see a couple. I have made, um, I completed additionally to my training and licensure, I have also completed training in what um, is very known, uh, commonly known as called Gottman therapy to treat couples. Um, so, you know, I completed my level three. So I use a lot of the tools for couples uh, from the Gottman uh, method. And then for the individual therapy, um, it's a lot of like cognitive behavioral therapy where we look at the behaviors, but also what are some of the thoughts that might be triggering and even more so thoughts like beliefs. What are the beliefs that we have about ourselves, life or other people that maybe promote negative feelings within? Mm-hmm. I gotcha. And so what do what are some of those ex- examples of some of those beliefs that usually come out in therapy? Um, sure. Well, I would say a very common belief that I think that um, many people might not even be aware that that is a belief is that I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of love. Uh, I'm not worthy um, of being liked. Um, maybe there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Mm-hmm. so then throughout life we have experiences um a lot of it negatively right like where a lot of, a lot of negative feelings um come out, out of interactions let's say um, mom and dad said something that to us it meant we're not worthy right mm-hmm. you know they're saying oh you're a bad kid and every time an individual hears that then it's reinforcing that belief you know I question this, am I good or bad? But I hear this from other people, so it must be true. Right, right. Wow, and do and do people, is that something that people are conscious of, that they're carrying around that belief? Not all the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, for someone who might be very insightful, but a lot of times they're not. What do you do with that once, once you know that that's there? Yeah, well, first I, I try to explain the process to the client so then they can start seeing it. They can start mm-hmm. seeing that this is a belief and how it has been reinforced. So they can pinpoint of like, yes, this happened. And yes, this reinforced it. Um, and I also, based on the history, you know, this is part of the assessment with one individual history and their present situation. I try to look at maybe positive relationships that they might have. And I try to, from what they tell me, point out the exceptions to that belief. Mm, okay, gotcha. You see, in this situation, then this person said and did something that makes it so this belief is not true because then, you know, if you weren't important to them and they didn't love you, then why would they give you so much love? You know, mm. you in general terms. So I try to like find exceptions in their lives to then challenge that belief. So I then guess, that yeah. belief is no longer true and it doesn't apply to every person and situation or the world. Do you see primarily couples or is it kind of like half and half? Like what's your your breakdown kind of of, of the clients well, you see? I would say maybe, right, like, you know, it might vary, like depending on mm-hmm. the case code. Um, I would say mostly usually it's half and half. Okay, half and gotcha. Half. Um, but I also, I do a lot of... Um, 
multicultural couples, like, you know, where people come from different cultures. And I also, when I do one-on-ones, um, many times is with Spanish-speaking individuals because there's just mm. not a lot of Spanish-speaking um, providers out there. Oh, okay. Gotcha. gotcha. Especially here in Tampa. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. I'm glad you brought up multicultural couples because I was interested in, in hearing more about that and kind of um, just some general ideas for people that maybe are in a multicultural relationship. I happen to be in one. Um, my wife's from Oaxaca, um, Mexico. And uh, and so we, yeah, I just, I'm curious to to hear kind of what challenges come up with that. And then also kind of the, the rewards of that, of being able to, to um, you know, successfully manage that. Oh, of course. I would say one of the biggest challenges that uh, multicultural couples have is when they start having children or thinking about having children. Um, because depending on how different the cultures are, like the traditions or the um, cultural expectations uh, might at times even be opposite of what is expected, right? And also we, when we have children, we want to pass that on. We want to pass who we are to our children. Mm-hmm. And that might or might not be welcomed by our partners. Right. Right. Like maybe there's a right or wrong way in their in their perception of how to raise a child or for like, I don't know, something that comes up a lot is like, how long do you breastfeed for? Like, you know, um, for maybe in, in American culture, breastfeeding is something that might last, I don't know, like on average six to six months to a year, maybe just over a year, maybe in, in more like Latin American cultures, like people are breastfeeding for a couple of years or more. Mm-hmm. And that is just like a common thing to do. And that can, that can be like a shock. Mm. Little things like that could be like impactful. And if somebody has like a very strong personality, then it becomes a problem. But usually surrounding child rearing, uh, family, role expectations, mm. how close are we, how, how much time do we spend with family? Do they live in our home or not? Like all these expectations are very different. If one person doesn't really understand why or they get stuck on like this is right or this is wrong then it creates a lot of conflict absolutely yeah, yeah. In the beginning it's great because you know what opposites attract and we like mm. things that are different and it's exciting and maybe there's cultural characteristics that are uh you know admired but then as we get settled in into creating a family that's when usually things start to to come up those differences start becoming problems I see. So it's like, yeah, the kids kind of give this opportunity for for a lot of conflict to come up. Um, within multicultural couples, do you find that there's different attitudes towards going to therapy and how, you know, incorporating what they experience in therapy into their daily lives? And, and what does that look like? A hundred percent. Yes. Um, I think a lot of times, specifically for individuals from other cultures, they might be afraid or even perceived by what the suggestions that are said that the therapist doesn't empathize with their cultural background or that might not understand how that suggestion doesn't really apply because that it wouldn't be something that they would do or it would be even um, 
maybe something that is like against something that they believe in, you know, based on like their traditions or um, maybe just their gender roles. So there's a lot of hesitancy um, also because talking about emotions is something that is so difficult, even, you know, in our primary language is difficult, right? Right. Even without the cultural differences. Exactly. And when you have to um, talk about something that is so difficult and then translate it, for example, into another language or not be able to use the words that you best understand or mean something to you, that can be um, scary because then people might hold back and not say things. So Mm. finding someone that can help you relate or that you feel that can relate to your cultural background is very important especially to give that first step, mm-hmm. you know, what is that person, you know, how are they going to really understand me? How can they relate to my experience? Ultimately as therapists, it's our job to relate to somebody's experience, regardless of their cultural background. But I find that in order to challenge that fear, to make that appointment, the idea that somebody understands already because maybe something about them is relatable helps mm. alleviate that fear. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. So, so the fact that if, if it's someone who, who feels like they, they might be marginalized or not understood, if they feel like that they can identify with the therapist before that the session even starts, then that kind of gives you a head start. It does. It just breaks a barrier. It just says, gotcha. you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go to that appointment because in my mind, I think that person can empathize with me. Again, it's our job to empathize with our clients regardless, right? Right. He alleviates part of that fear. Mm-hmm. Am I gonna be judged? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you um I, I know that you work with couples a lot and that you wrote a book as well. And I looked at your book a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about what's in your book and, and why you decided to write it? Yes. Well, actually, one of the reasons that I decided to write it is kind of like backwards um, because there's not a lot of I, – ideally, I wanted to write a, a book in Spanish because there's not a lot of resources for for patients and couples that, that speak Spanish only. Um, and, you know, here in Florida, we have a lot. But the way to go about it was backwards because the publisher was like, well, you have to do it in English first. So then I had to do it in English first, so then I can translate it into Spanish. But gotcha. the purpose behind it was to use a lot of the techniques and tools that I help my my clients and, you know, like from different theory backgrounds or from different, um, like, you know, the Gottman therapy or like, you know, there's this other therapy um, that a lot of people do is like EFTs called emotionally focused therapy mm-hmm. that I really like too. Um, but I'm not certified in that. But, you know, there's portions of that therapy that I might use, um, mm-hmm. you know, to complement my therapy. Like, because one therapy does not fit every right. problem, right? So you have to look at what therapy does it fit this person based on their culture and what they are going to be able to do. So you have to have a lot. So I just threw all my tools in this book and like, you know, just hopefully for my clients, but anyone really who wants to read it. And there's different, every chapter is like a different subject. So the first, um, you know, the first chapter might talk about like, you know, like how do you view problems? Then I have a chapter on forgiveness. Then I have a chapter on actual active listening and communication. 
Um, they have a chapter in expectations. They have a chapter in like how do we express and give love and how do we expect love. There's a chapter on intimacy, you know, and there's chapters about what are roadblocks to mm. to your efforts. Like even to therapy, what are things that work against you and that to be aware of? Like it's not like you're not doing enough. Maybe there are other barriers that you're facing that you might not even be aware are barriers and you're working against them. Yeah. Wow. So that's really cool. The the kind of the the idea behind it being providing resources to the Spanish speaking community. I really like that. Um, how have you? And is that would you say that that's kind of a big not just behind the book, but behind a lot of the work that you do? Is is that kind of a a goal of yours that you? keep in mind yes it is actually um uh, i've actually just started working on this big research program that we're trying to um the, the whole of it is just basically understand more about what are some of the barriers that keep especially minorities uh, in this research studies about latinos and african-americans but minorities overall that you know that keeps them from getting the the healthcare that that they want or need because they just don't have the information. They don't know the resources available many of the times, or even if they, they know exist, but can they really access them? Yeah. Can they really get from point A to point B to make that appointment? And that's a research project you're doing right now. Correct. And so it's looking specifically at Latinx and um, African African American. Okay. So can you, um, can you tell us a little bit about what some of those specific barriers are? Sure. Well, I mean, I think, um, well, the literature, like research, and there's a lot of studies that have been done. They have identified three areas, basically, mm-hmm. for limitations for minorities overall. Um, is the accessibility, availability, and utilization. Accessibility is when you think about, okay, are there services available? Are there providers who can speak their languages, right? Are there organizations that might be flexible about cultural differences or like, hey, this person really want to bring the parent here to the session, uh, but then maybe, you know, for other individuals or for someone from a different culture might have a really hard time because therapy is supposed to be confidential mm. and you're not supposed to share any information to bring someone in that it's not part of the therapy. It's really breaking that confidentiality. But for some cultures, that's what's going to take to help that person get there, right? Like it's going to help right. them feel more comfortable to know that they have somebody that they trust to come in with them. So are there places that provide the services, right? But even if they are, can they access it? Can they, uh, let's say, you know, the one place that exists is like on the other side of the city. Like how realistic is that they're actually going to make it all the way over there like once a week, do you know? And does that play offer the times available after work for me to be able to access them, right? Like what is their schedule flexibility? If I work from like, let's say nine to seven, which many minorities that have jobs, you know, that might not have that flexibility. When am I going to be able to see someone? So there's all these things that, you know, when you think about how often or what are the hours of, of doctor's offices? Usually they're from eight to five. Well, who's going to go to that appointment? I'm, I'm going to have to get a day off from work just so I can go to that appointment. And if my family needs money, I'm not going to miss a day of work. Yeah. So these 
situations that I think I, I might be overlooked do become barriers. I was actually just listening to an interview um, uh, on an NPR the other day about how many Latino, um, older Latino, you know, like they were like 50 and up, they did like some research about why are they not getting their vaccine? Mm. Well, they a lot of people think that you actually have to pay to get the vaccine. They don't even know it's free. So then we have the cost of money. Like, can do I have the money to pay for these services? If I don't have insurances, then I have to pay out of pocket. So how much am I going to be charged to see therapy or to see a therapist, right? Is it going to be $50, $20, $100? I mean, there's different ranges of how many practitioners charge, um, you know, because of their education. And that's understandable. But can I afford it? Not only do I have to lose a day out of work, then I, it's like, that's like what I have to pay. It's just how much I, I make in the day. That's like two days of work that I'm missing. Wow. So then we have that barrier. And then the utilization barrier is usually like, okay, I can't afford it. It's nearby. But based on my beliefs, am I going to do it? Because if I do, people might think I'm crazy. So even if the services are there, am I going to do it? Because maybe my beliefs are getting in the way. That's a lot of challenges. (laughs) (laughs) And I love, I mean, that was great how you just laid it out because it makes it so you did a really good job of showing that it's like a bigger system issue, right? It's not just one thing. If we can go in and fix this, then there's, there's three, those three areas that you outlined, um, so in your role as a, um, so you're, you're a researcher, but then you're also a, a clinician in your role as a clinician. How do you like, do you view that as part of your job to kind of keep all those factors in mind? Um, and yeah, I'm just want yeah, to hear your thoughts on I mean, that. Absolutely. Um, and I would say that I don't want to speak for other people, but I think that in the role as clinicians that we have and we understand what somebody's difficulties and limitations are, we want to be able to help them or accommodate them. And if we're personally not able to help them find a, a place or a person who can accommodate to it, because if I have a session with someone and I hear all these limitations to continue services, maybe I'm not the person for them because I cannot accommodate what they need, but Yes, I need to ensure that they're going to, whatever is going to make them more successful in keeping up their appointments if they need treatment. Because if they have to come home or, or like drive for an hour and a half just to come see me, like what is the likelihood that they're going to continue? I wouldn't drive for an hour and a half to go see anybody. You know what I mean? Like a doctor that then I have to pay a whole day of my salary to go see? Like, no, mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense for anybody. Um, so it is very important. And I think that because I've been working since the beginning in my training and because I, I've been speaking Spanish the whole time, I've always been exposed to clients and their limitations. I think that as a practitioner, I've always incorporated that as part of my assessment. What are the limitations that they have? Um, and then how can I help alleviate some of these limitations if it is within my power? But if it's not within my power, then how can I help? facilitate that process so then they continue receiving the services that they need gotcha yeah so that's that's just always been part of it for you um it sounds like yeah it can i'm curious to hear was there a moment kind of in your professional development or or 
thinking about maybe even before you started grad school where you realized that there was a need to kind of serve as a as a sort of bridge between those two like the populations who might be needing mental health and um the accessibility issues was there a moment where you kind of thought oh that that might be a direction i want to help in um yeah i mean definitely i when I first started in counseling, I used to uh, work for different agencies in the community where we specifically serve underserved populations where like, um, instead of, for example, expecting them to come to us, we will go to like the schools or their homes, you know, like after school was on, like with families mm-hmm. or with their children, um, or like see the patient at home. Uh, but individually, that wasn't very easy for me to do at certain times in my life. So while I was able to do it, I did do it. But then my personal life also is important because if I have children and if I have things, can I really do that? Because when if I keep doing that, then I'm taking time away from my family. So it's definitely been a struggle. It's not something that I have been able to do throughout. But if I mm-hmm. am able to do it, I try to accommodate. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think now, for example, that my life is a little easier with my children a little older, I can go back. And this is why I'm doing this research because Ultimately, that's I know that that there's a void mm-hmm. need to work on it, but it's also difficult to kind of balance that. Okay, you want to help, but you also have a life, and you also have your own responsibilities right. as a family. And then just took a break for a little while, but then I'm kind of getting back to it. But it's always been there because that void is so big. You know, like when you think about all those three areas that I told you about, most people don't have to think twice about them. Mm-hmm. But they exist. And for so many people, they're so real and they don't get the help they need because they don't even know that it's available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just so interesting, like this conversation about therapy with a clinician who works primarily with white, wealthier uh, clients. There's different barriers there. But it's there. It's a different conversation. You know, it's a very different conversation about about what's getting in the way of of therapy. Um, so this is. I mean, I'm just. I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing, um, and and appreciate you sharing about it. Um, if I could ask you one last question, what would you pass on to to people who are listening about therapy? Um, I. I would say if you're thinking about therapy, uh, maybe because it's that like you need to talk to someone and you have been thinking it for a while, just give it a try. And if you don't like it, you don't have to go back. You know, it's just like, but if you don't try it on your own, you're not going to know if you like it. Like you don't have to make a commitment. I think that's maybe it might be another misconception that you have to make this commitment to go mm-hmm. see someone once a week. But if you're just going to try and see what it's like, and then you don't like it, you never have to go back. What would you have to lose if you go once? If you like it, you go back. And if you don't, you don't. Right. There's no commitments. That's great. You're not going to hurt their feelings. They're going to be okay. <laughs> well, this is great. Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was really cool hearing about your work. And I appreciate you. Yeah, I just appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. All right, that's it for this episode of Why Therapy. Thank you so much to my guest, Anna Aloisi. If you want to learn more about her work, you can visit her website at comegethelp.com. There you can also check out her book, Reinvent Your Relationship, 
a therapist's insights to having the relationship you've always wanted. And if you want to learn more about my work, the services that I provide for therapists, or want help producing your own podcasts or other online content, visit mattshed.com. That's M-A-T-T-S-H-E-D-D.com. You can also reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at mattshed, M-A-T-T-S-H-E-D-D. Thanks again so much for joining us, and we're already looking forward to next time.